Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. This week we have the legendary Gypsy Nirvana with us. It's going to be a really great episode. <laughs> we were having a really good time right before this, so uh, I'm super, super, uh, super happy to have him on. He's uh, uh, a lot of us have known him or bought seeds from him or have otherwise uh, acquired genetics that started off through him. So that's really cool. Uh, so a lot of us have known him or bought seeds from Oops, him or have otherwise uh, acquired genetics that started off through him. So that's really cool. Someone's got a loop going. You know, I've got I've got this playing on the computer and on the phone at the same time. Yep. So just so pause the. Yep. Yeah, just pause the yeah, audio. I'm just trying to. You know, I've got I've got this playing on the computer. Oh, there we go. Okay. Cool. Right. That's better. Sorry. All this <laughs> this technology is killing me. You know? <laughs> oh, we'll get it's it. It's a podcast anyway. I mean, for God's sake, why well, couldn't they call it anything better than pod? What is a pod? You know, it's just like something you keep seeds in, isn't it? It's like you keep seeds in a pod. Yeah. <laughs> Are we all seeds in a pod now, gentlemen? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so we also have uh, Josh from Dutch Blooms with us this week. Hey, guys. How's it going? Excited for the show. Hello. And we got uh, Mr. Green Jeans, who was uh, wonderful enough to help uh, facilitate this episode. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Gypsy. Hello, there's a fellow fellow follically challenged gentleman there. How do you do, Mr. Green Jeans? <laughs> Good. <laughs> we finally, we finally yeah. get to see. We're out, we're out in public now. <laughs> well, no grass is growing on a busy street. I think we've smoked it all. You know, that's the <laughs> <laughs> and then we have um roger how are y'all uh, doing tonight well it's gonna be this is gonna be a lot of fun we've all of us working in the cannabis industry have heard about gypsy nirvana for for years and decade or two it's gonna be awesome i, I can't wait Awesome. Well, let's hope I've got enough battery on my phone here. Let me just check what I've got. Oh, I've got 42% on the phone. So, yes, we should be good for an hour or so. Cool. Yeah. All righty. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got started with the cannabis industry? And then uh, a little bit about what uh, what happened to you recently after that. Oh, dear. We're going to need more than an hour for this, I think. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Me? Oh, me. Oh, just some, you know, low-grade English kid born in a caravan somewhere in uh, in Surrey in England. Uh, I grew up um, broken family. Where's the small violins? He grew up and he was very poor and uh, his father was very nasty to him at first. No, no, never mind. We won't get into too much detail. But yeah, eventually I grew up into a fine strapping young lad. And one day I was um, found at the back of this uh, music machine. Um, it was a rock and roll venue back then in Camden Town uh, by this, this very large American lady who, who took me back to a hotel in um, Swiss Cottage called the Holiday Inn. And I ended up getting married to this lady and moving to America uh, when I was 17. And I had a green card. They gave me one of those green cards when I landed. And uh, yeah, I was in the United States for five years. So I kind of grew up in the States uh, from a boy to a man, I suppose you could say. 
uh, and uh, yeah, I kind of escaped what England. What England in the seventies? It was terrible. No future, you know, really. Well, it was the Irish Catholic thing, wasn't it? The Catholic Protestant. That's why it was really bad over there, wasn't it? Well, no, it wasn't. Yeah, you know, there was a few bombs going off, but there's still a few bombs going off today, just in the name of another deity, you know. So, um, no, where I think in fact, where were you in the U.S. for the seven well, years? Initially, well, this this uh, lady that um, happened to marry me, I feel sorry for her already, just talking about it. But um, she uh, she lived in 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 a in a state they call it the potato state. And it's called Idaho. And uh, so I, I moved to Idaho. So I was a kid from London, suddenly, you know, transported to the wilds of Idaho, Boise initially, and um, put into this, this whole situation with this mother and her two daughters, one I was married to, whose father had just died, who owned a ranch and this, that and the other. So I got a, a quick dose of culture shock into the American dream, so to speak. And so that didn't really last very long. I was I was still young. I was only 17 when I came over. And uh, I'd only been working in the music industry in London, kind of as a roadie, you know, uh, doing a bit of security um, for various bands. At that time, it was the, the whole punk thing was going down. So you had the Pistols, you had the Clash, you had the Damned, you had the Adverts, you had 999, all these different bands, um, London bands that were doing kind of started to do real well. And then suddenly I moved to the United States and then I left Idaho. I was only there for about three or four months and I moved to California. Um, and that's another story, oh boy, on the road to California. Because I met up with this guy called Sam, who was a juvenile escapee from a detention center in San Jose, California. He was in um, Idaho in Boise and he became kind of like my only pal. You know, I used to go and get stoned with him. And uh, one day he asked me to go visit a friend of his. And I said, how close are you to this friend? He said, well, we're not really friends anymore because he owes me money. So knocked on his door, the guy answered the door, and then Sam tied the guy up in front of me, and then grabbed a couple of um, shooters out the house. He had this, uh, this Colt 45 and this uh, 22 um, target pistol, this Colt, what they call it, a long rifle or something. And he gave me this gun. I've never had a gun in my life, you know, and um, put it down the back of me pants there was chafing you know down down it was very uncomfortable walking around with guns i tell you very heavy things nasty things and anyway we um he he kind of nicked this guy's uh, chevrolet suburban and then i sat there as a 17 year old next to this guy as he held up three sta gas stations and two motels so suddenly bang you know i'm right in the movie i'm in the united states and i'm you know sitting there shivering next to this guy who's holding up these places <laughs> what is he doing then he drops the thing off at the Greyhound bus station and we buy tickets through to san jose california on the Greyhound buses and of course he wants to get off at reno and you go on the gambling and winnemucca so we did that and eventually ended up on the freeway broke and then the cops picked us up and they found out that sam was a, a, a juvenile escapee from this detention center in san jose and took us downtown and uh, let me go basically because I hadn't uh, really done anything and I didn't tell him what Sam had done either uh, but they just nabbed him and they let me go <laughs> it's kind of illegal to hitchhike in Nevada so yeah anyway I could go on about these stories all day 
then eventually arriving in San Francisco and getting a job at the Mabuhai Gardens on Broadway, uh, working for Ness Aquino, who was the owner at the time, as a Filipino dude. Um, then I lived in California for the best part of, I guess, four years, four and a half years, working for bands. I started managing a band called Crime uh, there for a while. Um, I worked for the Avengers, did some roadie work down at the Whiskey A Go Go in LA and then started working for the Monsters of Rock uh, festivals that Bill Graham was putting on, the big concert promoter back then. Uh, yeah, and got around and then 1980, The Clash came over uh, to do a US tour and I was at the Warfield Theatre on Market Street um, outside and Strummer knew me from London because I've been hanging around with those guys back then, back in 76. And uh, <clears throat> he asked me what I was doing and like an idiot that time, I don't know why, but I was kind of a bit down on my luck and I uh, decided that I wanted to join the US Marine Corps. I walked into the Marine Army Navy Recruiting Depot on 3rd and Kearney Street in San Francisco and uh, signed up for the Marine Corps. So they were picking me up on the Monday. I went to see the crash at the Warfield Theatre on the Sunday and uh, Joe Strummer's asking me, what are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing with your life? I said, I'm joining the US Marine Corps. He says, you're bloody mad. <laughs> what do you want to be joining the army for and all this? Uh, so obviously the clash were really, kind. although they dressed paramilitary, they were kind of anti-military. And uh, that, that night they offered me a job in front of a, a journalist for the Rolling Stone um, working for them. So I went on the road with them. I said, all right, I'd get $700 a month and all the food I could eat in the Marine Corps. They said, we'll pay you $700 a week and all the food you can eat with the clash. How about that? So I said, okay, but it didn't last very long. Um, I ended up in, uh, first of all, it was um, uh, down to Los Angeles. And then from there, we went to Detroit. And then from there, we went to New York and Boston. Uh, so we did a bit of a US tour, but it didn't really last that long. And by the time we got to New York, the band wanted to go in the studio and record this album called Sandinista. And uh, then they said to me, what do you want to do? So I've been invited by Lee Dorsey. I don't know if you heard of Lee Dorsey. He had a few hits back in the 60s, like working in a coal mine, going down, 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 you know, and uh, ride your pony. And I'm not going to start a karaoke session, don't worry. <laughs> anyway, Lee, Dor <laughs> Lee Dorsey invited me down to New Orleans. So I went down there and he had an auto paint and fender shop. So I helped out painting some cars and then I got a job in a honky tonk called Old Man Rivers down there as a sort of place that they have chicken wire around the stage, you know, so people throw bottles at them. Um, yeah, no, some few, a few good gigs down there at Old Man Rivers. Uh, so then I was down in New Orleans. So I've been out to the west, been all the way down south, over the east coast. And eventually um, I got invited back up to New York by a guy called Smut, who's a bass player in a rockabilly band called Levi and the Rockettes. Because he wanted me to help them out at CBGB's Max's Kansas City and the Lone Star Cafe in New York. So yeah, I, I had a kind of life in the states of running around working as a roadie i did do a bit of growing out there um when i first arrived i met these guys uh, a couple of guys who had a field in novato and um they asked me to 
kind of look after their crops. So I was kind of minding their crops for a couple of seasons. What and, year uh, was that? What, what years would that have been? Must have been 78, 78, 79. And uh, back then, they were selling it to the Medical Marijuana Cooperative on Divisadero Street in San Francisco. They, they had this, even a Medical Marijuana Cooperative all the way back then in the 70s. So that was good. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I had a few years in the States. I ended up um, being a kind of in partnership with a guy called Robert Hanahan in a nightclub there. Uh, we were putting on shows at the San Francisco Club for the Deaf People deaf you know as in hard of hearing and they'd initially come to me because every year they had an annual do and uh, since I was supposedly managing the loudest band in San Francisco at the time which was called crime they used to dress up in San Francisco police department outfits and play heavy metal music these guys massive great big Marshall stacks behind them you know kicking out the jams it was amazing so these deaf guys wanted wanted uh, this band at their uh, annual do because then it was like hearing to him because the whole walls were shaking. Everything was, you know, everything was moving with the sound and so were the deaf guys. And then a lot of people wanted to come who could hear, hearing people. So they, they wanted to come and see the band too. So we started selling cover charges. The, the deaf guys started selling a lot of booze at the bar and uh, we made a business out of it. It opened five or six days a week and it was going quite well for a few months at San Francisco Deaf Club. And then, I was I was mainly con concerned with uh, the PA and the door and all the lugging stuff around, you know, because I was just kind of a strong guy there. I was working out at the time with the California powerlifting team uh, down there at the Sports Palace. So I was a big chap and I was a doorman and these five Mexican guys came to the door. Uh, they called them wetbacks and um, they were high on PCP and tequila one night. There was a big fight. And it went down the stairs and I ended up in uh, San Francisco General. Um, technically, I bled to death. I had a big chunk taken out of the leg. I was shot with a 22. Um, so, yeah, that movie was still going on over there. You know? <laughs> I ended up in a bad way. So, yeah, I kind of went. I've been through the gutter to the penthouse and back again a couple of times in the States. But always, wherever I went, um, I was always looking for good weed, you know, because it always helped me. When I was younger, they said I was um, a bit hyperactive. They even said I was maladjusted when I was in my teens. How dare they? How dare they say I was maladjusted? Anyway, um, this is what they said I was, but I found out when I smoked a spliff of some good uh, Moroccan hash or something like that, or Lebanese, or some red lead or some blonde lead or even some Pakistani or whatever I smoked kind of chilled me out calmed me down and uh, let me see the world in another perspective as it has done to many of us and it seemed to work for me psychologically at that time so it's always been something I've used that way and then later on in life I was in my 30s I had an accident and uh, I've hurt my back quite badly and uh, yeah, so I suffer a bit of a slip disc now and cannabis uh, kind of prevents me from having to take all these stupid pills the doctor wants to give me that just make holes in your stomach. So uh, I, don't, I don't take any pharmaceutical uh, drugs these days or try to avoid them. It's only in, 
you know, extreme situations where the pain gets uh, over 10, you know, on a white scale from one to 10, that I might even contemplate doing that. So it's just coffee and some weed, you know. <laughs> so why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us about uh, the, uh, the US government's uh, recent uh, fun effort to uh, have you come visit them from the UK? Well, to tell you the truth, I thought it might have happened a long, long time ago because I've been in this 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 uh, seed distributing game for oh, well over 20 years now. You know, I got interested in collecting seeds when I was out in Asia in the 80s. And um, then I started punting them out to a few people that wanted to breed with them. I mean, I mean I've never really stuck around that long enough to really get a good, you know, I mean, if you're a proper breeder, you got you've got to stick around for years to make something that's uh, really truly different and interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people these days, I mean, anyone can be a breeder. It's like, you know, any of us guys can go out and maybe make a child with a, with a woman that loves us or maybe doesn't love us, but we can breed with her. But to produce something really spectacular, particularly with cannabis, you're going to need a, a lot of space and a lot of time to do it in. And I've been moving around so much. And, you know, this whole thing with 10 years ago, I moved to the Philippines. I decided I'd had enough of this, this mega city madness. I'd have had enough of this crazy world, even busy, you know, money wasn't so important. You know, I had a few bucks stashed in my back pocket and I, I remortgaged my um, apartment here in the UK and, and I moved to the Philippines and I bought this piece of land on Palawan and and built a, a prawn hatchery. So we were making uh, baby prawns or fingerlings and selling them for 30 centavos a piece. You see, I thought this might be important to bring this up because this podcast has something to do with fish, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> definitely. And and what fish put up the back end of the fish, you know, kind of the fertilizer that goes into, you know, fertilizing your, your plants with a fish. Anyway, um, in all seriousness, yeah, I thought this would be an interesting project for me to get into um, producing baby prawns, but it proved to be quite complex and uh, very difficult to run uh, with the staff that I had there because I had an alcoholic um, technician that I'd hired, Roy, and his merry crew of alcoholics who um, seemed to be drinking more than doing much work. And then as soon as I'd go away and had a good crop, I had five big tanks going, you know, most of the time, they were all fully aerated and they had up to a million um, baby prawns in each one. So I'd go away, I'd go to Manila or I'd have to come back to the UK and suddenly Roy would text me and say, oh no, everything died, you know? Then I'd go back and find out that he'd sold everything to somebody. <laughs> so, you know, it trust and things, trust issues, that was the biggest problem uh, with that whole thing. Anyway, it was kind of idyllic living out there on the beach, beautiful piece of land, uh, it's had uh, six hectares right on the beach on Palawan. And then I fenced and gated it, built a beach house and got some fish pan as well. Got about eight, eight uh, hectares of fish pan where we could grow out the prawns. These were the tiger prawns, the bigger ones. So they, they fetched quite a bit in the market. 
they were getting 600 pesos a kilo. So it was a, it was a good cash crop to, to grow. Um, obviously, the, the, the complexities of, of growing uh, prawns in that environment um, were quite great. So I had to kind of employ locals to help me out. And I've not really been a very good um, judge of character during my life with some people. And I tend to employ the wrong people <laughs> and then things go wrong and you lose. But it was an interesting project anyway, and it's still there today. It's not, it's not in operation, but uh, maybe one day when they take me off the blacklist, I can go back. But anyway, back to this whole exciting episode with the Federales. Before I got sidetracked about telling you about how my life was over there. Well, eventually, I, I mean, I, when I first went there, I, I met this lovely lady and we had children together and fell in love and all, all this, that and the other. And we moved from the island Palawan, where the prawn hatchery was, we moved to Subic. Subic is the old US uh, naval base in the Philippines. Um, and it's still still used kind of part-time by then, by then, although they don't lease the base anymore. The base is actually owned by Subic Bay Metropolitan Association. And so you can live on the base and it's kind of like, I guess it's like a bit like living in the United States because the whole infrastructure of the base was built by the Seabees of the Navy, you know, so it's uh, American engineering in, and then even the house that, that I managed to get there was built to American um, building standards, building code or whatever. So it was kind of hurricane fireproof. And I've been living in this, this lovely house with uh, two young children and my wife, uh, since 2010 and it was 2013 one day i just got back from angeles city and um i was upstairs having a gin and tonic i think yes i was having a gin and tonic and then uh, my wife's sister who used to help out with the house uh, she she came and knocked on the door and she said downstairs there was some filipino men that wanted to talk to me and i said oh really so i went downstairs and it was the Bureau of Immigration. Um, they'd come to not arrest me. They didn't have an arrest warrant. They, they had what they call a mission order. So I, um, I had to go with them to Manila. They said I needed to answer questions in Manila. And I said, well, I can answer questions here. And they said, no, no, you must come with us. And there was about six of these guys. And, you know, they're, they're all carrying a piece. And then there was about six other armed guards around the place uh, carrying assault weapons. So I, I thought, yes, uh, I better not argue with these guys. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? Suddenly, you know, do my bionic ninja bit. And, uh, you know, because I was in a movie once called Bionic Ninja. It's quite silly. Everybody takes the piss out of me for it. <laughs> but uh, um, no, the thought did cross my mind. But. I, I thought, no, I'm in my 50s. I can't, you know, run like I used to. So in the end, I went with them and they took me to Manila. It was about a three hour drive into town. And uh, I said, where am I staying tonight? You know, I stay in a hotel. They said, oh, no, we, we sorted out the accommodation for you. And they took me to this camp called Camp Bargong Diwa um, in Taguig, an area of Manila. And it, Today it's a police camp and there's about two to three thousand police in that camp. And 
on the same grounds is a prison and a detention center. The detention center is for the Bureau of Immigration, and that's where they took me. This is in 2013. They took me in on August the 28th. I'll never forget it. Dates like that, you don't. <laughs> so they took me to this place, and it was filthy. I mean, it was this place was disgusting. You know, I mean, I I'm not a, a cleaner phobe or anything like that. You know, I mean, sometimes I might not do the the cleaning for a couple of months. You know, with the vacuum cleaner. But this place was was absolutely a disaster. You know, it stank. Uh, it was full of pollution from burning garbage. Um, they took me into this office and they just asked me a few questions. There was no proper medical screening or anything like that. And then once he logged me into the place, they just turned me through this, this, uh, through this iron gate, uh, this barred gate, they put me into the, the detention center proper, which was about the size of uh, half a basketball court. And there was two blocks on either side of a forecourt, which was kind of a communal area. And um, then they opened up one of the uh, one of the side doors into the right hand block and then put me in there. And there I had to find my own way. You know, suddenly you're put in with strangers, people that if you saw them in bars, you wouldn't want to sit down next to them and have a drink with them or anything like that. You know, some really rough people and some really lost people, you know people in various states of physical and, and mental distress. Um, you know, a few murderers in there, a few Korean mafioso hitmen, um, a lot of people uh, doing this uh, shabu drug, which basically is crystal meth. So it's a lot of people, you know, absolutely fried their brains on that stuff. Uh, yeah, it was, um, kind of daunting and I didn't really know what I was in there for. I hadn't really got a clue because as far as I'm concerned, my business is legal um, in the UK. So I, I didn't really feel that the USA was after me, although over the years I've thought, well, maybe, maybe I've <laughs> tempted fate a little bit too much and uh, they might come after me for some reason. But what, what it worked out was, the um the united states has decided not to try and legally get me back uh, to the united states to face these charges um they decided to collude with the philippine government and try and kidnap me so without due process of law without any extradition warrant without any warrant at all after putting me in this detention center for 10 days they tried to uh, put me on a, a plane to the United States, to Los Angeles. Um, just totally uh, extrajudicial, you know, it, it's, it's like a, what we call an extrajudicial extra rendition. Well, that's a big word. But um, yeah, they were illegally trying to kidnap me. And I wouldn't stand for it. Um, they took me to the airport. Um, a good friend of mine, Nick Spanos, who kind of was going through a similar situation with the United States trying to get him back to the States without going through the proper extradition process. Um, he said to me, don't kick off 
in the jail you know he said don't he says stay cool and before they try and put you on the plane dig your heels in he said just uh refuse to get on the plane or refuse to do anything that they they want you to do because if they're putting you he said if they're putting you on a a passenger plane then you've got 300 plus people on that plane that the captain is responsible for and he's not going to want a bull in the china shop is he you know so that was kind of my last ace in the hole that i mean i was supposed to behave that way it was all new to me it's not as if something it's not like something you do every day so these guards took me to the airport and then when i was at the airport um they tried to cuff me and i put my hands above my head and before i left uh, the jail i'd taken all my medication uh, for my back because I had three pills left that I was taking at the time because I was in a lot of pain. And I'd taken these three pills thinking that if they're going to try and hurt me to put me on the plane, I won't feel much pain. So I was in a bit of a silly mood, laughing and joking with these guys while they're trying to put the cuffs on me. And this this one guy, he was, of course, he's, he's quite short. He's a Filipino guy. And he's trying to, I've got my hands above my head like this, and he's trying to climb up my body to get to my wrists, you know. and I managed to shake him off a couple of times. It didn't hurt him. I didn't make any violent action towards them because there was a lot of them and I wouldn't win, you know, let's face it. I was just laughing and joking. I was in a real jovial mood and it, tend, it, it actually worked in my favor because eventually this guy gave up trying to climb up me and, uh, you know, eventually he got a chair and tried to stand on the chair and then I moved to the side again. And I said, look, guys, I said, look, I'm 250 pounds. You know, if you want to get me on that plane, you're going to have to pick me up like a piece of luggage and put me on that plane. But I'm not going to go easy. So I'll tell you now, it ain't going to be easy for you. And uh, I said, besides that, I'll get my lawyer on you because what you're doing is kidnapping. You do know what you're doing is illegal do you. And, you know, using voice techniques and just a few jokes and just not being aggressive towards them it kind of worked and uh, eventually th their boss came came along and he said okay we'll take him back to the detention center because he ain't going the captain doesn't want him on it on the plane so you know it wasn't it wasn't a punch-up or anything like that because for years i've worked in security and we we've learned how to diplomatically resolve potentially violent situations uh, before they get out of hand so i was quite confident that i could pull it with these guys pull it off and it did work there wasn't any um i'd seen them before the there was no u.s marshals there it was just the filipino bureau of immigration because me being a brit you know they, the americans can't just grab me and take me anywhere they want to in the world well Maybe they can, I don't know, but uh, legally they can't do that. But if I was an American, oh, I would have been toast, you know. <laughs> they would have had me straight out of there and on on some sort of Conair flight back to the States. But yeah, I guess uh, that was the best thing that I did. And then I came back to the detention center and I was there for another 30 months, you know, before I could get out, before I could deport because I had to file cases, my lawyer filed cases against the Filipino Bureau of Immigration 
for all these uh, you know inadequacies in, in what they were doing with me or not doing with me and these cases were just sat on in the court eventually the one in the court of appeals they decided uh, and they said that no i can't have bail but um if i'm deported i must only go back to the uk because that's that's immigration law if you're deported from a country you can only be deported back to your mother country your home country or to your last port of call so they sent me they they you know they 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 said that i could then deport back to the uk when i had dropped the charges against them so first of all i had to drop the charges uh, that i had in the supreme court against the bureau of immigration so my my captors um you know were the ones that i was uh, trying to file charges against in uh, filipino courts and of course they didn't like that so when my father was was getting real sick in the summer of uh, 2015 i was told he had leukemia he only had months to live i thought screw it this these courts are never gonna um, get to the point where they've made a decision on my case um, i'll be here for 10 years or more before anything happens and even the british embassy officials uh, come in uh, the um they told me they they said said to me that before there's there's been a, an english guy that was in there for 10 years while his case was uh, being argued about and eventually he was found not guilty but he still did 10 years in detention because how you know constipated the legal system is there and corrupt it is i mean while i was there i, I mean i was hoping because i got a young family i got a got a wife i had a life i just i was just starting a new company um nirvana salon distribution i just registered it at the securities and exchange commission and so i was i was trying to get this new company going just at the point where they pulled me in so i had a, a family that's dependent on me and children uh, so you know i really wanted to get out and live my life and be with them again the idea of starting a family again so late in my life and having children so late again in my life was to be a, be around them and be a dad you know and that that this this the whole travesty out of what's happened to me it's not the amount of money i've lost or the business i've lost or the brain cells i've had fried it's the five years i've lost of family life with with my wife and kids that's something that you could never get back or you know even if you know the wildest thing happened and i got reparations for this <laughs> which i doubt very much will happen but if that ever happened you could never pay me enough to take away five years of my, my kids life and and being with my wife for the last five years properly you know as a family so that's the great tra tragedy as far as i can see but you know in a way i guess some people can say you brought it on yourself by being involved in the seed trade but it's very important for me since the very start to be involved in distributing seeds because to normalize this plant in society people have to see it they have to see it grown they have to see what a wonderful plant it is how useful it is to them um, you know it's been used as a medicine for thousands of years and it's just been so demonized in the last 80 years the, the best way for people to get to know the plant basically is to grow it you know and to see that it's it's not a monster it's not some mad crazy like venus flytrap that's going to suck your blood 
you know, when you're not looking, it's a, it's a very useful and beneficial plant. I mean, it's a plant that I was thrown in jail for back in 1985 when, when uh, they caught me with a little piece of hash coming over from Holland to England and I refused to pay a fine. So then I was sitting in a jail when I was 25 years old wondering how to make a difference. What do you do? You know, I was thinking I'm not the only guy sitting in jail because of weed, uh, because of cannabis. There's thousands of guys that have been sitting in jail or still are, maybe millions. So we've got to do something about this. And the best way I thought was put the seeds in the hands of people that might grow them. And that's what I did for over 20 years. And it seems to have worked quite a bit. Well, we're not all the way there, but uh, you know, things have changed quite radically in the last 20 years compared to what they were as far as legalization is concerned. So why don't you for your efforts? Oh yeah. So why don't you tell us um, about uh, your your breeding and then um, about some of your, your different strains you like to work with, or maybe some tips on breeding, or you know uh, anything about breeding. Really, you're one of the the masters on that. Well, you know, there are far greater breeders than me. I mean, as far as breeding goes, I wouldn't even call myself a breeder. I've not been able to produce a crop in many years you know and um my my main interest was collecting collecting land race varieties of cannabis uh, running around the world and finding um really remote areas where you would find growers of cannabis that have been growing it for generations in that area and bringing something different back to the west so western breeders could uh, work with those genetics I've been doing that over the years and supplying people. I think the last, the last grow that I had was in 2003 in, in Amsterdam. Um, well, just outside in my direct, uh, had a grow going there with producing seeds. And then that got busted. And the Dutch are quite good about, well, I don't know if it's good or bad, but the police come around, empty every, everything out of the house that has anything to do with growing weed, put it in a dumpster and take it away. And then don't charge anybody for anything. They just, it's like taking the toys off you, you know? So that was the last grow I had was in 2003. So I haven't even been able, you know, to grow it freely uh, in all that time. I didn't want to jeopardize um, myself in the Philippines by growing there or, or my wife or my, my children, because as you know, they have very draconian attitudes towards any type of drug in, in the Philippines that isn't sold in a drugstore. <laughs> now with the current president Duterte, you know, oh, there's all sorts of human rights violations going on over there. So what type of, what different varieties do you like? Uh, and uh, tell us a little about the seed, the seed, your work with the seed selling and seed company that you have. Yeah, well, due to my predicament <laughs> over the last five years, um, naturally, a lot of my customers have found that it's better to go elsewhere because I've not been around and I've not been able to buy new stock particularly I've still got a lot of old stock uh, that's left there um, as my fortunes went down so do the fortunes of the company it's something that I have to get onto now and start reviving again 
you know, mainly what I used to do was travel a lot and find seeds. I go and visit breeders and I'd buy seeds or, you know, some people would buy seeds off me and people would make seeds and supply them to me or I'd supply them to them. And uh, I spent many years just traveling around the world, meeting many different breeders. As for my favorite, favorite type of weed, um, I guess, yeah. I, I prefer sativas, although, you know, in a pinch, if there's nothing around, I'll pretty much smoke anything, you know. If it, if it get, gets you a buzz on, I mean, beggars can't be choosers sometimes. I mean, I was just locked up for 30 months two years ago, and um, I didn't really have any weed at all. Somebody came by one day with some very um, swaggy-looking Filipino weed, and I smoked it, but I think I, I just imagined that I got high off that. That was just once while I was locked up. But um, yeah, I mean, when I got out, my tolerance was so low the first time I smoked something strong. And when I got back to um, the UK, some of my the people that used to work for me, uh, they were there waiting with weed and, uh, and cava, this uh, uh, Spanish champagne, uh, when I got out. And I got totally blasted just on a couple of hits because my tolerance was so low. These days, um, I don't I don't smoke every day unless I feel the need. You know, it tends to um, take the edge off the pain in my back when I get it. Uh, but uh, the back pain is on and off. It's not too bad mostly. But uh, I don't think it's really you know a good idea to smoke all day every day. Uh, it's not something that's good for me. Um, use it sparingly and sensibly if I've got it that is you know because at the moment since I've been on bail uh, for a year and I just came off bail in the UK on this this case in uh, the, the United States was trying to extradite me I just came off bail so you know I don't know should I start growing again <laughs> You think it's a good idea? <laughs> Am I have I got a target on me now? You know. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard mm. question. So, do you want to do you want to tell people a little bit about your mission to grow growers and breed breeders? <laughs> well, I think most people know about that. Um, we've been growing grow to, growers and breeding breeders uh, for many years. I mean. ICMag has been up now since 2003, icmag.com, everybody. A very lively growers forum out there on the intrawebs. Check it out, icmag.com. Yeah, uh, it's enough of the advertising. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we've, we've seen quite a lot of growers through the years, and we still have some very good growers on ICMag, uh, showing everybody, growing and showing. You know, everybody can see what they're up to. And it's kind of a cool environment because it's, everybody's got a different name to what they really are. So we don't know if that person's growing in California or if he's growing in Baluchistan, you know. So it doesn't see the legality of the whole thing is it's not important on, on the Internet or on the website. So people just get on and do their thing there and, and they show it or they don't. And it, it's built a community over the years that, uh, 
you know, it's kind of been my solace. While I was locked up, there were still people out here vouching for me or, or remembered who the fuck I was, you know. So um, there's me thinking I was just going to disappear into the into this uh, old Filipino death camp that I was put into. Saw some awful things there, you know, and nasty people. But now I'm out, and the next thing on my agenda is to try and get my family over here. It's not such an easy thing to do, is to uh, get them into the UK. I've had my passport given back to me about a week ago, so then I could get a, a copy of it, a certified copy. It's a requirement for my wife's visa. So, yeah, I'm um, I'm concentrating on on getting the wife and kids over here. You know, yeah, I really suffered through this whole thing. I mean, I've, I'm sure that I roasted a few or boiled a few brain cells. You know, I just didn't feel right when I came out, and it's taken me a while to get my act together. Uh, you know, it was just being so contained and, and physically inactive for so long. It's a uh, wear and tear. Yeah. So, do you want to tell us um, uh, more about your uh, experiences working uh, in the cannabis industry and, and uh, as far as, uh, you know, different, um, different breeders that you're, uh, uh, you know, really enjoyed working with or really enjoyed their stuff or? Yeah, well, over the years, I've got to know most of the the players within the cannabis industry as far as the seed business is concerned. You know, all their different Dutch breeders from Ariane at, at uh, Greenhouse Seeds. Soma was a good friend of mine. Um, Mao from Nirvana Seeds. Um, the Dronkers people from Sensi Seeds. Uh, Hank from Dutch Passion, you know, Luke from Paradise Seeds. It's a whole big community of um, kind of businesses in Holland, particularly. And I lived in in and out of Holland for, for many years. I had a shop there um, called Seed Boutique right on the single canal about a block away from Dam Square. And I had that shop there for I think it was about six or seven years. But all these shops I had, I had three in the UK as well. I had hydroponic systems, I had a Gypsy Nirvana, a tattoo piercing shop, and then I had a seed gallery as well in the UK. But with shops, you need employees, and with employees, you need to manage them. And there's me, you know, I'm all over the world. I'm running around all over the place. It's very hard to find the right people because people you will, you will hire uh, invariably will be stoners, you know, and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to run a business with stoners. Um, yeah, because you're getting stoned all the time and then things don't happen, you know. <laughs> things get forgot, <laughs> things get left behind. Oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, I was never trained as a manager or anything like that. It was just really about the quest to get more seeds out there, to get people growing them. And over the years, I managed to do that. I managed to get kilos and kilos of seeds out, not just the ones I sold, but uh, with, with every order, we always send out free packs of seeds as long as people share them with uh, others who might grow them. So, you know, it kind of 
had its own kinetic energy, the whole thing. And in this day and age, it makes me very happy to see so many more seed companies now. And quite a few in the United States are, uh, are coming up. Um, so Americans now, they don't have to order from abroad. They can order within the continental United States and they can buy seeds from other Americans. And uh, that makes things a lot easier for the industry as far as um, getting seeds and the genetics into people's hands that, that want them and, and need them, you know. So I've seen the seed company um, or the seed business come a long way. When I first started, <clears throat> there was only uh, three seed companies that were sending internationally that I can remember. There was Mark Emery, there was Heaven Stairway under Richard Calderissian, and there was me. Um, maybe there was a couple of others here and there, but uh, we were the three main seed businesses. And then Emery got into trouble. And so, well, no, before that, I think it was Heaven Stairway did with Overgrow got into trouble in 2006 and was taken down by the Mounties. And uh, I think Emery... Dutch Passion Sorry? that got in trouble. It was Dutch Passion and that was on Overgrow and they got shut down Overgrow. Uh, literally shut the website down because of the Dutch Passion seed sales. You mentioned Hank a while, Hank a while ago. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, I didn't I mean, know that. That's kind of a little while after I came into it, started yeah. working in the business, and when they shut Overgrow down, I, I, it was my understanding was because of the seed sales that they had, and they their seed bank was called Dutch Passion. That's what they were selling on Overgrow when they got shut down. I think it was Dutch um, Dutch Flowers, wasn't it? Um, there was another seed. So you come, no. more than one. I thought that's what it was. I'm sorry. Go on. I'm sorry to interrupt your story. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's, it's yeah. good for you to interrupt because my voice is getting a bit rough. As good as some of you guys talk for a bit, I've got to I've got to pop outside and have a have a quick smoke because I'm at a friend's place and I can't smoke in here. Um, no worries. Thank you. Because it's uh, you know it's that's a part of the tenancy well. agreement. Cool. So I'm just no gonna worries. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just pop outside for a, for a quick spliff and I'll be right back, yeah? All right. <laughs> well, I hope everyone uh, is enjoying this episode so far. This has been really cool to hear about uh, you know, kind of the evolution of how this all uh, came together and uh, to talk, get to talk, to talk to someone that was uh, generally very elusive in our market, so it was pretty cool. Thanks, Mr. Uh, Green. Yep. Are you, uh, yeah, thank you again, Mr. Green Jeans. Pretty cool. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. He's, he's just a, he's a legend. I mean, you know, I, to me, the, the distribution of genetics is really important. You know, I, 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 I'm sorry I didn't put more effort into it, you know, more years ago. You know what I mean? It's really, and just, I, and I know it, for him, it, you know, it took a lot of courage. I mean, people are, people you know he was you know breaking the law you know and, and supplying tons of uh genetics here in the united states and that's a huge thing it's really a it was really a great service in you know he's like one of the warriors fighting the good fight you know so to it's heartbreaking to hear about the the jail thing you know it's uh it's unbelievable that he would have to uh suffer for 
doing something, you know, <laughs> so so big and so important, you know what I mean? Plus the fact that he started the fight. He went ahead and stayed with just started the fight. He started the damn fight. He started the fight. Starting the fight. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, to bring change about anywhere, somebody's got to stick their neck out, haven't they? Some some muggins has to stick their head above the parapet, you know? to make anything happen otherwise you just get ignored and my you know my idea of being a, a cannabis advocate and, and uh, you know trying to make a difference was to do it with the genetics of the plant quite simple i i couldn't see the point in hanging outside police stations smoking spliffs i don't really think that that would do do a lot other than piss off the policeman but um you know, getting getting genetic, good genetics into the hands of people that then, then can use them either to save themselves from having to buy um, the weed or, you know, they, because of their needs medicinally or recreationally or whatever they want it for. Um, then it gets the plant out into the, into the public domain. And once it's out there and people can see how beautiful it is. I mean, who can deny a cannabis plant in full flower? It's, it's, a, it's a sight to behold, you know, it's a beautiful thing. So, you know, even just aesthetically as, as a plant, it's beautiful, let alone what it can do um, to alleviate whatever ails you, you know, not everything, obviously, but it certainly helped me in many ways uh, during my life. Well, um, sort of as a follow-up question, I guess, I mean, hearing your passion and how do you feel about people being very exclusive with genetics? You know, after hearing like you really put your life and your family, you know what I mean? And then the mm. people, different guys are holding on to, you know, cut whatever, you know, that's got to feel well, a little offensive, I imagine. Well, the, the thing is, uh, you know, nature only, is there. Only amateurs hold on to genetics. Only yeah, you know, I, I, only beginner breeders do that. It's something. It's something that they'll they're, they'll change their mind after they've been doing it ten years or so. Trust me. Yeah. Well, we we always just had me. this and rappers. Yeah, we've always had this. People trying to get proprietary with nature. You know, you can't really own nature. You know, and you can't really ban it. I mean, this is what's gone wrong with prohibition. They've tried to ban a piece of nature, an essential part, which is the, the cannabis plant. And it doesn't work. And you can't really own it. Okay, there's, there's some breeders that might put some work into developing a certain variety. But then why are they developing that variety? For what use? Are they doing it so that they produce seed crops and then sell the seeds? Are they producing it so that they can have some exclusive type of cannabis that nobody else has? I mean, you know, then they're getting proprietary with nature. I think genetics should be shared and uh, they belong to all of us in, in many respects. You know, I have, I have a lot of respect for, for breeders. Very few of the breeders out there actually put a lot of time, effort and years and work into producing something. But you, you, you can't... Um, you can't really copyright a variety, can you? I mean, I guess, uh, you know, it's been going on the last few years about some people copywriting names. But in those names, uh, what specifies the variety of cannabis that they've actually copyrighted? Don't they have to get its DNA profile to be able to copyright it properly? 
I you know? think it's branding. I don't think it's as much as they're actually being able to copyright it. It's more branding, right? They want the exactly. I own White Widow, or you know what, Blue Dream, yeah. Blue Dream. Yeah, it's branding. It's just the name, you know. I mean, but what about the genetics that's behind that? Exactly, the well, pedigree is what's the most important thing. If you don't, if you don't, uh, if you don't talk about what family you come from, you know, if you don't, you don't stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before you. Then what are mm -hmm. you? <laughs> you got nothing. Exactly. And really, we're all polyhybrids. You know, there's, there's, there's no pure humans. I don't think. You know. Well, no, we're all a mixture of somebody else, huh? I was just saying, most of our polyhybrids are put out. You know, the the fathers and mothers are put out by folks who did some serious work and and put that out for yeah. free. You know, Kemp, so, You know, we can go down so, the line. <clears throat> So if we if we drink wine with a bunch of like fall crocus juice, can we make like a polyploy human? <laughs> Maybe it's worth a shot. But, you know, know that wouldn't work though, because they generally are they generally are fertile, right? I guess that wouldn't <laughs> work for very long. I don't know. So I find it very interesting. I mean, there's so much going on in the cannabis industry now that some markets have been opened up suddenly with with uh, various types of legalization i don't know it's not really legal unless anybody can grow it like they can tomatoes really isn't it you know this is this whole thing with this is tax and regulate this and do this with the plant and then you know they're, they're, they're developing and creating more criminality with legalization than they had when it was prohibited it's it's ridiculous you know i, just, I guess it's just more jobs for the boys more jobs for the bureaucracies out there to run around and knock on our doors and tell us what we can do and what we can't do all the bloody time. Taxes, taxes. Uh, well, the other thing is this bullshit with licensing and local control and little local townships having, you know, absolutely psychotic levels of of demands on on cannabis companies. It's ridiculous. How much to start a good cannabis out in the states that are legal? It costs a million, two or three or four million to open a pharmacy or have any kind of decent business because the permitting alone is over half a million dollars closer to a million by the time you get through with all of it you know just to have apply it's like 200 grand in some places 400 grand for the, the you're looking between uh, between lawyers consulting and uh, and applications and the whole thing and then retrofitting your facility to meet the guidelines you're looking at between three 300 to 500 K and um, in a lot of in a lot of cases Jesus, ridiculous! It's they're just trying to—they're they're trying to figure out how how that you know if they're going to legalize it, they want to make more money out of it than they do with it in prohibition. I guess you know. So it's about balancing the books. It's always about money to these people constantly. You know, they have no love for the plant at all. It's just how much they can make out of it all the time. Oh, that's exactly it. Yeah, you know, this this thing you do, growing with fishes, back to, you know, the topic of, of sure. the uh, podcast. Yes. Um, I had a friend years ago called Breeder Steve, and I used to go and visit him hey, in hey, Switzerland. Hey, hey. And he was, really, he was really into this, this growing with fish shit. You know, this I whole... know. He was the very first aquaponic person I found way, way back on... Um, 
what was the name of that? It was some grow forum, and he had a post from 1996. And what he did was he had, um, uh, <clears throat> I remember, this is the first post I can remember reading of him posting about fish, because I've been following him a long time as well, is he had uh, um, uh, uh, plants in hydrogen in um, net cups, and he was putting the fish shit on top of that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a long time ago and the intricacies of what he was doing there in that factory in Switzerland, you know, some of them, uh, I don't know, they've been fried with my brains, but um, yeah, I was quite impressed. He had, he had a, a set up there, he had, had a couple of aquariums and stuff and, and he, was, he was growing his plants from the fish ship, so I thought it was great, you know, it's, it's a, a very good way to do it because you're getting all the nutrients you need from the fish. <clears throat> yep that's what uh, a lot of us here on the on the show actually do so yeah so that that's what you do or what you go out and you set up uh, small and large grows for people you have like a business to do that to you yeah so we also have my own we also have my own oh, i also have my own company but uh, i also do consulting and then some of the rest of us have do consulting or have our own grows or um you know various things depending on what we're doing <laughs> I've been lucky enough to learn and work in a couple of different countries, so that's been pretty mm -hmm. cool as well. So this is Josh's uh, from Dutch Bloom's greenhouse. Uh, Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you got since you're uh, wandering through here? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was just having a smoke. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt the conversation, but it, it's so cool with the pink lights and the sunset. Can you guys hear me with the fans? Yep. Um, I just um, getting this greenhouse planted. Um, these plants I uh, actually just bought or bartered for, and they're uh, not liking me too much, as you can tell, in my cold greenhouse at night, so they're getting a little uh, acclimated. Of course, it is nighttime, so they are going to sleep. That's why I was showing these uh, these guys down here. These piho are really just jamming, um, but they are going to sleep, so they're all... But you can see it. I don't know if you can see. I can feel these leaves are just so leathery i i just want to roll them up and like uh make some canagars or something um i as soon it, it, i've only been into sun grow for about uh two seasons now and um i'm just i'm just so impressed with sun grown cannabis even though i'm using these assisted lights uh it's a different thing in in my opinion so oh, that yeah. that grow there is that grow fed by fishes this is not, um, no. So I, I, I used to do a lot of aquaponic with fishes and this is all uh, just regular soil. Um, you know, I mend okay. it with, uh, you know, whatever, uh, kelp and guanos and, and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just new onto my property going through the legalization stuff. So um, I'll be working into, you know, supplying my own nutrients as I develop it. But this well, is that's a little, lovely this looking is, greenhouse. This is the second one off this greenhouse, man. I, I put the first one in last fall, and uh, so this will be my second pole. And I just nice got setup. these lights. Um, yeah. I'm really excited about it, guys. I, I actually just got this computer turned on the other day, and I'm learning how to use it. Um, it's, an, it's like next level for me um, with all the staging. Actually, Roger, you probably know a little bit more about it than I do, but there's so much control in these greenhouses, more than the indoor grow. Um, more than the way I, I had learned, but I got this little eye grow controller, and um, yeah, 
it's pretty fucking cool, guys. It's been it's been uh, you know not as long for me as it's been for you, but uh, it's been two years since I've been able to really bust a crop and and have control. So I'm feeling pretty pretty jazzed. Yeah. Now is that light so depth that, as well, or it will be? I don't have the light deprivation. Um, it'll go between the two uh, rafters. You can see each little section. Uh, it's another 20 grand, believe it or not. Um, this shit is expensive. This, I just did my taxes and, and I have uh, just under 200 grand into this house uh, this year, not including the lights. Wow. Yeah. That's expensive. So, it is, but I should be able to pull out, uh, you know, 150, 250 uh, pounds of, you know, trim flour out of it. What are you getting these days for a pound of the herbage over there in California? I heard its price is going down all the time. Yeah, I'm actually in Washington State, and it's, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Um, yeah. People are getting down as low as 25 cents a gram. We're talking in grams now. So Bloody that's hell. Yeah, fuck, that's 250, you know, even less. Um, but people also get as upwards of, you know, four a gram, and that's mostly indoor there's still misconceptions about about this stuff, and um, I have I have yet to enter the market here, to be honest. Um, so I'm gonna find out after this grow, um, but I, I I plan to kind of be there at the top end level. I don't have a lot of employees. I don't have any employees. It's just me. So I'm gonna only sell ounces because we have to prepackage all this stuff. Uh, there's all these barriers, you know. Yes, it has to come out of my facility prepackaged in whatever container it's gonna be sold in. So uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to do ounces and, and go low and just try to hit that, try to get into the black, black market, you know, to come into the legal stores and buy organic flour, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, that looks like it'll keep you busy. That's a yeah. bloody, bloody great big greenhouse that is, isn't it? How many square meters is there? How many square feet? Uh, it's about 3,000 square feet. Woo. Yeah. So I have 1,800 square feet of, uh, you know, canopy, as we call it, right? These are six-foot-wide beds. This one's eight yeah. feet wide in the middle. Um, Which is good. I could, I could grow out of here for the rest of my life, guys, and just be eight. like, a, you know, keep twerking on it. I mean, you all know. it's. Uh, I'm just su super happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be super happy if I had a nice greenhouse like that too, young man. Uh, <laughs> I wish you did. I wish I could share some. What's the width on that? Uh, what's the width? On it's a on? 30, 30 footer. There we go. Oh, it is a 30 footer. Mine's yeah. 30 footer too. Okay. That's what yeah, I was 30 by 96. The beds are okay, um, 90 feet wide or 90 feet yeah, long. Yeah. That's me. That's me right there. I guess. Yep. Same thing. You get yeah. a different design. But well, and you so, got you nice know, upgrades will be that it'll get, you know, a rafter that'll open up. A ridge vent, and then these guys will go on uh, machines, uh, motors, and roll up and down when they say it'll get the light depth. And then I'm actually going to pull up all the beds and um, throw some uh, pecs in there and do the radiant floor and kind of get in there and, and do a ground air transfer system and just kind of tighten down, you know, tighten up the parameters. That's I, I've got you know grandiose ideas.
What you, what you get the radiant floor in there, that, that's going to be heaven in that thing. Oh, my goodness. It's, you can't, I can't even afford it. That's why I showed you the plants are, I'm not, I don't have any heat in here because I can't afford to do it. Uh, propane, fuck that. Thousand bucks a week. Um, hmm. I mean, it might make sense in the overall numbers, but I just don't have the money. Right now. Does it get that cold a lot there where you're at? It gets into the 40s. Um, they don't they don't like it and especially so you know these guys right here that I just bought they came from uh, an indoor grow room so they didn't they weren't used to going down this cold at all but once the plants my, my experience in the last two years is once the plants get used to it they do just fine like these piho they have no problem I mean they're ready to go to sleep any moment um, but in the in the day they're just you know uh, praising Jesus you know mm-hmm yeah so so what lights you got in there are those high pressure sodiums or what you got they're, they're leds leds okay yeah. i feel i feel pretty mixed about it i just got them it was very expensive the interesting thing that they're doing over here is um they're actually rebating on rebating us on these lights so there's 72 mm -hmm. lights in here and uh the total package cost about one hundred fifteen thousand. But wow. they, reba they rebated me, so I only had to put in eighteen grand. Wow, that's that's a huge rebate, man. Yeah, serious. I I never would have done this if it wasn't for that. And then is that like a government sponsored rebate deal? How do you get that rebate? No, it's it's the power companies. So there's there's private power companies, and their grids aren't big enough. That's this is what the deal is. Their grids aren't big enough, and so they're scared that if we all go online with HPSs, that will shut them down. And so it makes right. more sense for him to, to buy us out by buying gotcha. a super light. You know, yeah. Um, so yeah. the other cool thing beyond these being LEDs, I can't zoom in, but I'm trying to show you there. See that little bulb up there on top of that thing? Yeah. Um, it, it's a, a sensor, and it helps them communicate to each other and to the computer, but it also senses the amount of sunlight, and they'll dim up and down um, yeah. accordingly. So it saves a ton of energy. I like great. That advice about that thing. That was pretty cool. Look at this little girl. I've been uh, the other thing I've been doing is spending a lot of money on this shit. These uh, beneficial insects. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to take over the show, guys. I was really into what was going on. I just thought I'd walk through here. Oh, what are the beneficial out? insects? What kind of insects were they? Um, I have a lot. I've got Andersoni. I've got Persimilis in these little boxes. Uh, these are Cucumeris. Uh, in the soil, we have Stratiolalaps or Hypoaces. Um, I got the wasps, little stinging wasps. Uh, and then the lace wings. What are they called? Uh, Search the sea. Um, I can't remember, but the lace wings and the lace wing larvae. I think that's it. Lace kinda, wings are hungry. Yeah, I just uh, <laughs> kind of hit the the whole game, you know, because I took these plants in and and um, yeah, I didn't want to spray them, so I, I did I did this and just threw threw the army at them. 
I see. So you're just being proactive by going and getting every predator for everything that might be yep. brought in the plants that you bring into your new greenhouse. Right. Well, because because like that part of the program, right, is like don't bring any more shit in. Pack, pack some seeds and. Yeah. Uh, but but I kind of got in a pinch, and, and I was able to trade this for some weed that I wasn't really wanting to sell. Um, and I just, you know, I was able to get me into production. And I smoked their weed. That was really the final straws. This this stuff actually here is the Synex. And I usually don't want to buy, uh, or I don't want anything to do with something that uh, is as popular as Synex. But it smokes so good, I, I, I was like, all right. <laughs> if it smokes good, it'll sell. That's my... Uh, experience anyways awesome so yeah I'm fixing this bed tomorrow and then planting it out I got a it's got all cattywampus on me and I'll plant it out and uh, we'll be on the way on our way I'm actually going to build little mini hoops over each bed um, because it to light that bit because it's cheaper than, than buying the $20,000 uh, light depth kit. I'm going to build these little mini hoops out of PVC and manually light depth inside the greenhouse, which is uh, becoming a more popular technique. As well. Why don't you explain That's good. Is that a convection tube up top? Could you explain to everybody about that? Is, is that oh, yeah, is? yeah. So this guy, and I'm learning about, about some of this, to be honest, but uh, this is an air distribution tube. I'm trying walk over here. You can see the perforated holes, but it, it, it's opened up on the side, on either side. And then uh, it's got a, a louver on the back that opens up to the outdoors uh, when the computer tells it. And it's obviously got the heater underneath it, so the hot air will rise and suck into that. And so the idea is that it just, you know, distributes the air evenly throughout the whole system. Um, and it actually works really well for, for de dehumidifying the, the scene. Um, because it can just suck that air from the top in there and suck it and also has a, the evac uh, on this end. So um, I'm just dialing, dialing in the, uh, the on-off times and the cycle times and all that. But it's cool with this computer. You can do a lot of stuff. You can have a cold dehumidification stations. You can have a warm dehumidification stations, dehu one, two, three. You know, so you kind of work through these series of events, um, so you're not having these rapid changes. It, it's it's pretty cool shit. I don't know what's going on with my phone. It's got three percent ah, so left on it, and uh, oh, no. I, I don't I'll have shut the. Up then. Okay. No, it's all right, man. If I suddenly go off, it's not because I'm being rude. It's because I've run out of juice on the phone. But well, um, do you want to help me? Go ahead. Yeah, I just I'm trying to locate. I don't know. I've I've lost uh, uh, the video on this uh, show, so I'm trying to get back on. <laughs> I know you can hear me, but I can't oh, yeah. see you. <laughs> Is oh, that no the camera settings? Okay, let's see if I can. That yeah, always happens to me when I'm doing it on my cell phone. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, I want to. Sometimes when the video, uh, when the power starts to get low, it'll shut it, the camera off automatically to save power. Oh, maybe that's it. Right. Because it's got 3% now. Um, so, do you want to uh, plug, do you want to mention your, um, any websites or any uh, anything that people could do to help support you or any websites you want to uh, 
mention or uh, anything else while you still have some juice? Well, I'm, I'm managing to support myself at the moment. Um, I see mags going fairly well and we've got quite a few advertisers. I'd just say if anybody wants to, um, anybody within the cannabis industry or outside of it who wants to advertise on a, one of the busiest growers forums out there on IC Mag, uh, just get in touch with us through the website. Um, we'll be happy to put your advertisement up with many of the others that we have now. So, you know, that, that's what's uh, kept me going really is the website more than anything. It's a seed company kind of fell flat on its face and uh, somehow or other I've got to try and build that back up again. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, I mean, the members of, of the site have been very kind over over the years that I was locked up and um, they sent in seeds that were sold and then there was a fund and that helped me out and my family out while, while I was locked up. So I'd just like to thank the members of ICMAC uh, specifically who helped me out while I was uh, well I wasn't doing too well let's put it that way. Um, it's gone on now. I mean, eventually they allowed me to deport back to the UK and in a year and a half ago, the, the um, extradition squad at Scotland Yard come and picked me up and they took me to court and they bailed me for this extradition trial that's been going on for the last year and a half uh, with the, uh, the, the American federal uh, officers, alphabet agencies or whatever, wanted to try and get me over to face this prosecutor in Maine uh, on these charges all to do with my business, legal business in the UK of selling seeds. And eventually, even after a, on their appeal, which was on the 15th of March, it was decided not to send me stateside. Um, are you still there? Yep. Yeah, the, the British justice decided not to send me to the United States. And uh, so I'm free in the UK now, although it's kind of uh, tricky for me to travel outside because there's probably this Interpol red notice out there. So if I were to travel to another country and I got picked up, um, then I might well end up in the United States in Maine facing these federal charges with... Uh, many years locked up uh, just over the seeds of the plant. What they failed to do in court was to prove any conspiracy on my part or any uh, instigation or incitement to, for people to grow cannabis. Um, yeah, I mean, I've not been inciting people. I've been, I've been advising people over the years um, that it's probably best if they do grow their own rather than try and buy it off some gang that's selling it downtown somewhere. You know, it's always been better to produce your own, probably better to produce your own beer than go down a pub and might end up in a scrap in the bar. You never know. <laughs> You're going to be carried away there anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been a, been a bit of an odyssey. I don't mind coming on, onto your podcast again at some point i don't mind if you want to have me oh i'd love to i appreciate it thank you so much fantastic i've got a lot, I've got a lot of other stuff to talk about i mean if, if i was to sit down and actually write things down uh, different topics to discuss get a bit more organized about it probably we, we could present a better show
that would perhaps interest people more than sure. this one. <laughs> we'll, get you, we'll get you on again and we'll make sure we have a, a power cord for your phone next time. All right, mate. We all take care. <laughs> and thank, you all for your, thank you all for your kind indulgence. Toodaloo. Yep, thank you so much.